Our scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4 and 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That I, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There was an elderly couple. Man, that sounds good. <laughs> Got a new microphone, and it sounds fantastic. There was an elderly couple who in their latter years had really focused on their health and trying to prolong their life, so they ate right, they cut out the foods that were not good for them, they exercised daily, and they just made all the right decisions, and then tragically they passed away in a car accident. Well, they arrived at the gates of heaven, and an angel escorted them in to show them around. And the angel showed them their home. It was an elaborate house with a swimming pool in the backyard, a huge master, master suite, a, a baking kitchen, and all the amenities you could ever want. And the husband said, well, how much is this going to cost me? And the angel said, well, you don't understand. This is heaven. It's free. And then the angel took them outside because their house backed up to a golf course. And the angel showed them the course and said, there are no green fees. You can play every day for free. And guess what? Every day the course changes to mimic one of those grand courses you had on earth. And then the angel took them to the clubhouse and showed them the dining room there. There was this massive buffet with every delicacy you could ever want. And the angel said, this is where you'll eat all your meals. You'll just come up here and, and you can have anything on this buffet that you want. And once again, the husband said, well, how much is this going to cost me? And the angel said, like I told you before, it's heaven. It's free. And the husband said, well, then what's the catch? Is there a low-fat, no-sugar-added, gluten-free area of this buffet? And the angel said, no. Because in heaven, you don't have to worry about those things. It's absolutely free, not just in, in regards to how much it costs you, but it has, you have no cholesterol issues, and you have no worries about gluten, and you have no worries about fat. And at that moment, the husband took off his hat and threw it on the ground and began stomping on it and yelling. And the angel and his wife were dismayed and they asked, what's wrong? And he looked at his wife and said, if it wasn't for you, I could have been here 10 years ago. I actually missed a line in there. I'm supposed to reference the fact that she made him exercise and she made him eat well. But you got the point. We joke about heaven like that. We joke about uh, comparing heaven to these great things that we think about on earth. And sometimes I wonder if when we arrive in heaven one day, sometimes I wonder if we'll get there and we won't have but a little bit of a sense of wishing we had made it sooner. 
Not a frustration, not an anger, not a disappointment, but an overall realization that as Dorothy said in The Wizard of Oz, there is no place like home. Because ultimately that's what heaven is. As we just read in John chapter 14, Jesus himself told us that he's gone there to prepare it for us, to prepare this grand abode in which we will live in God's house, which has many rooms for all eternity. Heaven is depicted, at least in some sense, as our ultimate home in Scripture. The last two lessons we've engaged in in this series called Foresight have specifically examined just how great heaven will be. And we're going to continue with that same objective today as we consider three unique descriptors of heaven that are mentioned in the Bible. See, the goal of this series has been to help us grasp just how magnificent heaven is with the limited information we have in Scripture so that we will live each and every day aiming for it. And so this morning, I want us to think about three unique descriptors used in regards to heaven to help us continue this understanding of just how great it will be. And here's the thing about heaven. There's no place like it because heaven is a place of newness. Now let me explain what I mean. If you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, you'll come across a section of the text where John is describing what he saw in this unique vision And it relates to heaven. So in Revelation chapter 21, particularly in verse 1 and 2, you read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you'll skip down to verse 5. John then says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. As John began describing what he saw when he was given this glimpse of heaven, he starts by using the language of newness. Now we understand a bit why he sees it as new, because Scripture repeatedly declares that this physical universe in which we currently exist will be destroyed. The first heaven and the first earth, that's a reference to this planet consisting of its land, its sea, its skies. And Scripture declares that this physical world will one day be annihilated. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35 that heaven and earth will pass away. And then Peter declared in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12 that when Christ returns, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So this physical universe is going away. 
and it's being replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. I don't want to dive into the details of all that. I just want you to focus with me on the concept of newness today. Newness is special, is it not? I remember quite vividly getting my first vehicle. This is not a picture of it specifically, but this is the color-making model of my first car. It was a 1986 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. I did not get it in 1986. I was only six in 1986, Ben. My parents bought that car brand new off the lot in 1986. When my brother, who is three years older than me, turned 16, they gave this car to him. That was in 1993. Three years later, in 1996, I turned 16. And the car that had once been my parents and now was being driven by my brother was then passed on to me. And let me just tell you, parents, that's not fair. (laughs) When I turned 16, I got a car three years older than the car my brother got when he turned 16. And guess what? I also got a car that was used by a second owner other than my parents when I turned 16. He got a car that was carefully cared for by my parents. I got a car that he treated like a pickup truck because that's what he really wanted. So when I got this car, the upholstered ceiling was sagging. The front grille was being held in place with gum. And it was just a little bit beat up. When I turned or excuse me, when I graduated college. The Saturday that I graduated college, I didn't go to my bachelor's graduation. I went to the car dealership. And I bought my first car, brand new, off the lot, no miles driven on that car that were not driven by me. And there was just some greatness about that. There was something special about not having the hand-me-down anymore. There was something special about being the one and only driver and owner of that vehicle. That newness of that car, it was special to me. And my guess is that everyone in here has had that special feeling associated with something new before. Maybe it was a new vehicle. Maybe it was a new home. Maybe it was a new cell phone when the new one comes out every year now. Maybe it was a new outfit. Maybe it was a new toy you get to play with. We've all experienced at some point in time when you get something that's new and it's not used anymore. See, when we look at this world around us, we have to admit, we entered a, rare, a fairly used world. By the time we entered the picture, this world was already tainted. This world was already touched. This world was already used and abused. And what we've been promised 
in Revelation chapter 21 with a new heaven and a new earth is that it's going to be a place that Jesus is preparing for us and it will not be a hand-me-down. It will not be corrupted by previous residents and it will not be tarnished by the wear and tear of time. It's going to be absolutely perfect. And it's going to be absolutely designed just for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. One of those rooms is waiting for you. And Jesus says that He Himself is personally preparing it for us. See, one of the things that makes heaven so unique is the fact that it's going to be perfectly new. But that's not the only thing. There's another thing, another metaphor that we can come across in Scripture, another descriptor we can come across in Scripture that, that gives us an, an idea about the uniqueness of heaven, and that has to do with its splendor. There's no place like home because heaven is a place of splendor. You know, there's a story told about a man who found out it was his time to go to heaven, and he asked the Lord if he could bring along just one thing. And the Lord said no initially, but after many requests, the Lord relented and said, you can bring one thing. Happily, the man packed up a suitcase full of gold bricks. And when he arrived in heaven, the angels said, sorry, you, you can't bring that in here. But he said, you know, the Lord told me I could and, and, and gave me permission. And they finally relented and let him come in with the suitcase. And when they opened it, one angel said to the other, oh, he's just bringing in pavement. You know, when you go to Revelation chapter 21, it's so fascinating. Because you have this description of all these precious gems, these precious metals, these jewels that are used in the construction of heaven. Let's attempt to read that right now. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, I personally don't think that these gems and jewels are, are stated here to be literal. My reasoning for that, for one, is if you look at verse 18, John said the city was made out of pure gold like clear glass, if that were the case then how is he able to see it? Additionally, if you jump backwards to, verse, uh, to a couple of verses and you get the dimensions of the city, the, it's a perfect cube, width, length, height, all the same. 
that I believe in contemporary measurements would equate to 1,500 miles in every direction. I don't think that is meant to be taken literally. Instead, if you even look at those dimensions, it's using a number, a derivative of 12, the number of perfection. And how many different jewels are mentioned in the foundation? 12. Again, the number of perfection, of organized religious perfection. I think what we have here is symbolism in these terms to help convey something about heaven. That the construction of it is unique. So think about all these gems and stones and jewels and precious metals. What do they convey to us? I think they speak to the worth of heaven. The construction materials used in heaven are not common or cheap. They are precious and valuable. And I believe they are identified for the expressed, per, excuse me, for the expressed purpose of conveying that heaven is absolutely priceless. But also consider the visual array of colors that these gems would produce. I don't know if all of these are correct, but one author said it this way. We will see the red of jasper, the blue of sapphire, the light green of emerald, the black of onyx, the brown of carnelian, the yellowish green of chrysolite, the aquamarine of beryl, the yellow of topaz, the golden green of chrysoprase, the orange of jacinth, and the violet of amethyst. In other words, Heaven will be a visual spectacle, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And I think that this array of colors that are manifested in this description of all these jewels and gems that are used to construct heaven is intended to, to communicate to us that heaven is going to be absolutely beautiful. This place that Jesus is preparing for us will be unlike any place we've ever experienced on earth because it's going to be constructed out of the finest materials imaginable, if we can even use the term materials in that sentence. I think the whole point of this construction of heaven is to convey to us beauty and costliness, not a blueprint. Heaven's going to be glorious because of its splendor. It's going to be worth more than anything you can imagine on this earth. Why do you think Jesus said, what can man give in exchange for his soul? He's talking about value. And where is your soul going to reside for eternity? But in the most valuable place ever and Jesus is preparing that place for you. So whether we're talking about the, the metaphor of newness or the metaphor of splendor, we're looking at heaven and it's described for us to motivate us to want to go there. But there's, there is one more, one more descriptor of heaven 
that's worth mentioning today that serves as a wonderful motivation as well. And that is the fact that heaven is a place of reward. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming that heaven is a reward, as if it is something that we earn. That's not the case. Heaven is an inheritance, graciously given by our Heavenly Father to us as His children. This is clear in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, where, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is not a wage. An inheritance is not a reward. An inheritance is a gift that is freely bestowed on those who are its rightful heirs. So heaven is not a reward per se. But Scripture repeatedly refers to God as a rewarder and His people as the recipients of a reward. Three times in Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus addressed the proper attitude toward giving and toward fasting and toward praying, he would describe God as your Father who sees in secret, who will reward you. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek in Mark chapter 9 and verse 41, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And then in Luke chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus instructed his disciples to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind when they give a feast. And he indicates that if they will do so, they will be blessed. Why? He goes on to say, because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. My point is that throughout Scripture, eternity in heaven is described with reward language, with the fact that God will reward us in heaven, not that heaven itself is the reward. So that leads to another question. If heaven is not the reward in and of itself, because we can't earn it, then what is the reward? I was drawn to the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. Because this parable, we've referenced it numerous times in this series, and rightfully so, because it's one of three parables told in Matthew 25 that according to the verse 1 and 14 are intended to show us what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Now, I want you to pay particular attention to what happens when the master addresses the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant, beginning in verse 19 of Matthew 25. It says, Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, there are two things that stand out to me regarding our reward when we look at what the master said to his servants, to his faithful servants. First, I believe God will reward us with a personal commendation. A couple of weeks ago, we examined what we will be doing in heaven, and we we talked about rest, and we talked about learning, and we talked about worship and fellowship. And these activities will likely take up the bulk of eternity, but do you realize that at least some of your time in heaven will be spent listening to God thank you? Look again at the first thing the Master said to His faithful servants. You can see it, Matthew chapter 25, verse 21, verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. Just think about that for a moment. When you stand before Christ on the day of judgment, you are going to be welcomed into heaven with a personal word of affirmation from the Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 that when the Lord returns, each one will receive his commendation from God. In other words, when you get to heaven, God's going to thank you. Can you wrap your mind around that? with all my flaws and all my failings and all my disappointments that I know he's experienced, and yet, when I arrive before the gates of heaven, he's going to be waiting there to say, well done. Pictured on the screen right now, are two Olympic athletes. On the left side of the screen in the, the red outfit is Bjorn Dali, if I pronounced his name correctly. He's from Norway, and he's the most successful cross-country skier of all time. Over the course of four Olympiads, he won eight gold medals and four silver medals in various competitions. This picture was taken at the conclusion of the 10,000-kilometer 10, 10, cross-country ski race at the 1998 Winter Olympics, where Bjorn had just won gold for the third straight time. The young man that he's greeting is named Philip Boyt. Philip is from Kenya, and it was the first, excuse me, he was the first Kenyan to ever participate in the Winter Olympics. Apparently, he had never seen snow in his life until two years prior to this Olympics when he decided to begin training in Finland, I believe. Out of 92 race finishers that day, 
Philip Boyt finished a strong 92nd. What's interesting about this photo and what's interesting about these two guys is that Bjorn completed the race 30 minutes prior to Philip. And Olympic officials tried to move forward with the award ceremony before Philip crossed the finish line. The only problem was that Bjorn wouldn't go to the podium. See, Bjorn waited at the finish line for Philip to finish because he wanted to be there. He wanted to greet Philip. He believed that Philip deserved some recognition for being the first Kenyan to compete in the Winter Olympics. And I think like Bjorn, Jesus is waiting at the finish line for you and me. We haven't run the race as well as he has, but he's waiting at the finish line because he wants to greet us and he wants to say, well done. I look forward to that. I eagerly anticipate hearing from my Savior and my Lord that I've done well because I at times don't feel like it. My father passed away a few years ago, and one of the unique things about me and my father's relationship is that up until the last few months of his life, we never said, I love you. It just wasn't part of our verbal repertoire. He didn't grow up in a family that would say it, and so it was hard for him to communicate that. And at times, it's hard for me to communicate that. But I remember when I took my first ministry position, when I got hired down in Pensacola, Florida, to be a youth minister, and my family helped move me there. My dad helped me set up my house and my office, and then before he left, he came up to me and said, I'm proud of you. I never needed an I love you after that. I didn't need to hear those three words from him because I heard I'm proud of you. And that was the best thing I could ever hear from my dad. And I can't wait to hear that from my Heavenly Father one day. I want him to be proud of me. And so you know what? I haven't always done the best I could in this life, and I haven't always been as successful in do, being a faithful servant in this life. But you know what? It's my aim every day, looking forward, to be worthy of the well-done, good and faithful servant when I stand before him on the day of judgment. But I don't think that's the only reward we'll get. I don't think personal commendation is the only reward that's associated with heaven. I believe God will also reward us with an eternal celebration. Because if you go back to the parable of the talents and look at what that master said, he started with, well done, good and faithful servant, but he ended with, enter into the joy of your master. Another translation says, come and share your master's happiness. I think that maybe part of the reward is going to be permanent happiness. Now, in, in prior lessons, I pointed out that the Bible never instructs us to be happy. 
Happiness is not a biblical pursuit. It's an American pursuit, not a biblical pursuit. Do you know why the Bible does not endorse the pursuit of happiness? Because happiness is circumstantial. Your happiness is tied to your circumstances, and that means as circumstances fluctuate, so does your level of happiness. But here's the thing. Heaven is going to be absent all those circumstances that prevent you from being permanently happy. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but there's not going to be any pain or loss or grief or evil or sin in heaven. None of those things that could negatively impact your happiness. So when we hear the words, come and share your master's happiness, he's going to mean it. We're going to be rewarded with permanent joy and happiness. Think about this. The Greek term translated blessed in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5, that can also be translated happy. In other words, we could read Matthew chapter 5 as saying, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And all of the Beatitudes find their ultimate fulfillment, not in this life, but in the one to come. And I think it's worth pointing out that the concluding passage of the Beatitudes says this. Verse 12 of Matthew 5. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. See, I think heaven's going to bring something into our existence that we've never experienced. Permanent joy. Unending happiness. Something that we'll never experience in this life, but we can experience as we stand or fall in the presence of God. Reflect for a moment on the happiest moment of your life. Maybe it's when you graduated, maybe it's when you got married. Maybe it's when you had a child. Maybe it's when you retired. Can you remember the emotions? The feelings? The excitement? Heaven's going to be that all the time. Because you're going to be in the presence of God for all eternity. For the past three lessons in this Foresight series, it's been my goal to try to take our limited information about heaven from Scripture and package it in sermons that convey just how great heaven will be. Because we need to live for heaven today. We need to live with the goal, with the objective, with the aim of ending there. We need to live focused not on this life, but on the life that really matters.
I want to tell you about this little fish. This minnow-like fish that exists down in Central and South America is affectionately called four eyes. This name is derived from the fact that God designed this little fish with a unique set of eyes. His eyes are situated on the top of his head, if we could use such terminology, so that he can spend his time cruising along the water line with the upper half of his eyes sticking out above it. You see, this guy, he's got two pupils in his eyes and two corneas, which allow for the upper half of his eye to be adapted for vision in air and the lower half of his eye for vision in water. So this four-eyed fish, as he is called, has the ability to see both above the water and below the water simultaneously. Or to use our Ecclesiastes study on Sunday nights. To see above the sun and under the sun at the same time. See, that's how we're supposed to exist. Not just with our eyes focused on this life, but with our eyes focused on what is to come as well. Because if our eyes are focused on heaven, it's going to change the way we live on earth. And that might just be the change that you need today. Because one day this place is going away. One day this life will be over. One day we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And one day our eternal destinations will be handed down. I know where I want to go. And I know what's expected of me to get there. And so I know I want to live with that level of foresight. Today, if you don't know where you will end up on that great day of judging, well, now is the opportunity to make a decision to become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is His risen Son, by repenting of your sins, and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Today is the day. Today is the opportunity, the only one you're guaranteed to have right now, to make sure that you're headed for heaven. If there is any degree of uncertainty, today is the chance you have to make things right so that you can inherit that place of newness, that place of splendor, that place of reward. If you have any need to respond to this invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Don't miss out on heaven.